You're listening to a podcast brought to you by Trowers Includes, international law firm Trowers and Hamlin's diversity and inclusion program. Welcome to this Trowers Includes podcast, part of international law firm Trowers and Hamlin's diversity and inclusion program. My name is Nicholas Barrows and I'm the director of marketing at Trowers and I'm also a member of the firm's LGBTQ plus and allies network, one of the firm's seven diversity and inclusion networks. Perhaps slightly unusually for us, today I'm speaking with Arthur Willman, a performer who has nothing to do with the legal sector, but a man in his 90s who shared 61 happy years living with another man. Arthur's love over the performing arts, his life with his partner Alex, and indeed his time in the Navy offer interesting stories in themselves. But for our audience today, I hope that the conversation also provides us fresh perspective on the life of a loving couple and on some of the freedoms that many of us enjoy today. Arthur, welcome to this Trous Includes podcast. Thank you, Nicholas. I'm glad to be here. Um, can I start with asking you a little bit about your career and your love of the performing arts? It's a very long story. Um, I'm told that uh, my mother was involved in a car accident shortly before I was born. With the result, I was born uh, two months prematurely and I weighed only three pounds. Consequently, I spent my life at the doctor's. When I was about six, uh, the doctor said to her, does he like music? So my mother said, oh God, yes. She said, when the wireless is on, you can't keep him still. He said, right, that's the answer. Dance lessons help build his stamina. Well, we didn't know anything about dancing schools. So my mother spoke to my grandmother, who had a friend who worked for a dancing school. And I started learning how to tap dance. At the end of the first term, the school principal took my mother to one side and said, he shows a marked aptitude for the work. Ballet would help. So I suddenly had to take ballet lessons as well. I continued with that for 10 years. And when I was 16, a show came to Manchester where I lived called Follow the Girls, starring Arthur Askey. The principal dancing part was played by a lady called Wendy Toy. Wendy had been discovered as a 12-year-old by Charles Cochran, who made her into a star. She also happened to be a close friend of my teacher. So one day while they were talking, uh, Wendy said that she was only going to be in the show for six months. After that, she was going to leave and direct a new show for Charles Cochran. My name had come into the conversation, so she added, send him down to me when I'm auditioning and I'll see what he's like. And that was that. Six months later, I received a message that I had to go to London to audition for Wendy Toy. Well, there was no way that my parents were going to allow me, as a 16-year-old, to come down to the Wicked City. So my father came with me. We found the Palace Theatre in Charing Cross Road, and he waited at the stage door while I went in. 
The place was absolutely crowded, and suddenly a voice from the front of house said, Is Arthur there? Arthur from Manchester? I said, Yes, I'm here. Right, come on, let's see what you can do. So I went onto the stage, gave the pianist my music, and went into my routine. I was told, Thank you very much, we'll be in touch. And that was that. I naturally assumed that Wendy Toy would be writing to me. When no letter had arrived by the end of a week, I became convinced that the post office had lost it, and I had to find out what she had said. And the only way of doing that was to come back to London, go to the theatre where she was appearing, and ask her. I had a friend the same age who was also a dancer, and he said he would come with me. So we came to London. I went to His Majesty's Theatre, as it was in those days. I went to the stage door and said, I would like to see Miss Toy, please. And the stage doorkeeper said, You can't. She's not here. I said, But I must see her. It's important. You can't see her. She's not here. She's left the show. She's not here anymore. And so that was the end of that. We left the theatre feeling very disconsolate. There was an alleyway opposite the stage door which ran all the way up to German Street, parallel with, with the Haymarket. So we were thinking what to do next. All we could do was go back home. But suddenly I saw a man walking towards me. I recognised him as a dancing partner of Wendy Toy. So I said to George, he'll know where she is, he danced with her. I'm going to ask him. So I stopped him and said, I wonder if you can help me. I'm trying to find Wendy Toy, but they tell me at the theatre that she's left the show. But why do you want to see her? So I told him about the audition and how the post office had lost the letter and everything. And he said, well, I'm sorry, I can't tell you where she lives, but I'm the choreographer for the show. Would you like to dance for me? My name's Jack Billings, and I have to do the show first. So come and see me when the matinee's finished, and I'll see what you can do. So that was that. George and I went off to the pictures for a couple of hours, and when they finished, we went back down to the theatre. Jack was there with two ladies. One of them was his wife, and the other one was Dorothy McCausland, who was the ballet mistress for the entire Jack Hilton organisation. So I got onto the stage without music and just did my routine. Jack came back onto the stage and said, Right, what about your friend? Does he want to dance? So I said, I don't know. We haven't talked about it. He said, well, go and ask him. So I went to, back to the stage door and spoke to George. I said, he wants to know if you want to dance. And George said, well, I can't. I've got no shoes. Fortunately, we were the same size. So he put my shoes on and off he went. Though we talked about dancing a lot, I'd never actually seen him do it. As I watched him, I realised he was really quite good. When he'd finished, Jack came back onto the stage and said, I like what I've seen. 
but there's nothing I can offer you in this show. But he said, go home and give me a chance to think. I've got a bit of an idea at the back of my mind. Just give me a chance to sort it out and I'll write to you. And I will write. So George and I went back home and that was that. About a week later, we both received a letter from Jack to say that he'd had this idea of teaming us with a third boy and creating an act around us. The act was launched and became very, very successful. 18 months into the contract, I received my call-up papers for national service in the Navy. So I had to leave the act. When I came out of the Navy, the act was no more. Variety was dead. Dorothy McCausland had been writing to me throughout my service and said that if I wanted to go back, she'd do what she could to help me. She sent me to the Coliseum to see a lady called Maggie Boyle. Maggie was the ballet mistress for the Emmy Littler organization and was responsible for Annie Get Your Gun, which was at the Coliseum. There was also a national company, which I had seen in Glasgow while I was in the Navy. She told me there was nothing she could offer me. And that was the end of that. A little later, she called Dorothy to say, can you recommend any dancers for this new production? And Dorothy said, well, what about Arthur? She said, oh, no, he'd be no good. He's too short. But Dorothy said, well, did you see him dance? Maggie said, no, it was, there was no point. It was a waste of his time and a waste of my time. He's just too small. So Dorothy said, Maggie, as a personal favour to me, just see him dance and then make up your mind. Oh, all right, if you insist. Send him along, I'll see him. But I'm telling you now, he's too short. But I was sent back to the Coliseum to see Maggie Boyle, and she threw everything she could at me. And I signed my contract before I left the theatre. I had three months to wait before I started rehearsal, so I went back home. A little while later, I received a telegram from the Edmund Littler organisation asking me if I could join the National Company as a replacement the following Monday. I stayed with that for about nine months, and then we finished just before Christmas. So I went home for Christmas, and we had the usual family parties. And my uncle, who didn't really approve of his nephew being a dancer, said to me, so what are you going to do next? I said, I don't know. There's something coming called Kiss Me Kate. I don't know what it's about, but I might try for that. And that was the end of that conversation. A few weeks later, they started doing the auditions for Kiss Me Kate. George Carden was to be the ballet master. There were 400 dancers started at the auditions for only 10 girls and 10 boys. So we were filtered down and filtered down. 
and I got a message to say we'll be in touch. And that was the last I heard of it. A little while later, I had a telephone call from Dorothy McCausland to say, have you auditioned for Kiss Me Kate? So I said, yes. She said, what happened? So I told her. She said, oh. Well, I've got George Carden in the office. He's been looking all over London for you. Apparently, you're on the recall list, but they've lost your details. So you're due at the Victoria Palace tomorrow morning at 10 o'clock. When I got there, there were 20 boys. And again, they threw everything they could at us. Finally, we were lined up across the stage, and I was at one end, and she started from the other end. She said, when I call out your name, step forward. George Carden was standing behind. So she started at the other end, and she said, right, the boy in the black tights. George tapped him on the shoulder, and he stepped forward. The boy in the yellow shirt tap, step forward. The boy in the blue jeans, tap, step forward. And so on, all the way down the line, until she got to the very, very far end. And she said, and, um, uh, peanuts. And George put both hands on my shoulders and whispered in my ear, you just got yourself a new name. And I was pushed forward. Peanuts I became and Peanuts I stayed for every show that I went in. The name followed me from theatre to theatre, from television studio to television studio. Nothing I could do would get rid of it. The last show that I ever did was Bells Are Ringing. Three weeks into the run, I became unwell. I went into hospital and I was there for 10 months. When I was discharged, I was told that I mustn't dance anymore. Your memoirs, Don't Forget to Check Your Flies, The Memoirs of a Dancer, were first published in 2012, are still for sale today um, for anyone wanting to learn more. But um, can you tell us a little bit more about them? One day I was in the dressing room being a fringe production, the men's dressing room was a garden shed in the back garden, beautifully equipped, but it was still a garden shed. So I was in the garden shed when the young villain, Iago, came in. And during conversation, he started asking me about other things I'd done. One question led to another, and then another, and then another. When we finished, he said, I hope you've got this written down. I said, what for? He said, don't be silly, you've got a book there, start writing. I said, yeah, I should go, go. He said, I mean it, start writing. I went, hmm, yeah, bad chance. About nine months later, I started to wonder. He'd planted a seed at the back of my head. And I started to wonder if I could write a book. Try as I might, I could not find the first line. It was so difficult. Everything I tried just didn't seem right. Eventually, I did find something. 
My grandfather was Arthur Wilman. I had an uncle who'd run away to sea during the First World War, who was Arthur, and he was drowned, and I was named after him. So that started the story off. And once I started, it wrote itself. My partner, Alex, uh, was to have a minor operation. And he had to go to the hospital one day for some tests. So before he went, he said to me, I don't know how long I'm going to be, but I'm going to want something to read. Give me a couple of chapters of that thing you've been fiddling with. So I gave him the first two chapters of the book. When he came home, he says, right, I've finished that. Where's the rest of it? So I gave him the box file with all these loose sheets. And he sat glued to it for the next week. When he'd finished, he said, don't you think it's about time you did something with it? I said, like what? He said, get it published. Eventually, it was published. Amazon have given it five stars. And last year in America, it was named Book of the Year. You talked about Alex, and Alex passed away three years ago now, um, but you were able to visit the rose that you planted in his memory at the crematorium near your home. Can you tell us a little bit about your life with Alex and what it was like to live together when you first became a couple 60-odd years ago? When we first met, uh, we knew that our relationship was illegal. Every gay person knew that they were illegal. So you learned very, very quickly to be discreet. That discretion became a habit, and it's something I still practice today. Um, nowadays, young gay people can be very exuberant, flamboyant, and nobody takes any notice. I couldn't do that. My whole life has been discreet. And that's it. Consequently, it didn't matter what we did or where we went. We were always accepted. And you mentioned that your your uncle didn't necessarily approve of your, your choice of career, but clearly you had quite a strong drive to pursue it as, as you did a lot of opportunities you're able to take advantage of, but can you tell us a bit, little bit about the passion beneath that drove your, your desire to dance and perform? I keep saying that the sound of applause coming from an audience is addictive. Once you've heard it and you realise that it's intended for you, you want more and you keep working to achieve it. And it's just as simple as that. It's like a drug. And when did you first uh, experience the feeling of that drug? Was it when you first started dancing or was it when you were 16 and looking for, your op for the specific opportunities? 
before I went into the business, there were, towards the end of the war, uh, there were numerous local amateur talent shows. And I went in for a couple of those. And it was a solo performance, just me and nobody else. And the sound of that applause started the whole thing off. When I became a member of the Three Barons, it became more. There was a lovely story once that um, we'd only just started. We were launched as a little backstreet theatre in Brighton where we could make a complete mess of it. Fortunately, we didn't make a mess of it. Our next date was at the Granada Cinema in East Ham. It was just four acts accompanied by the theatre organ and the major film. Then we played uh, Hackney Empire. Now, up to this point, my parents didn't know what I was doing. So my father and my grandfather came down and presented themselves at the theatre so that they could see what we were doing. The top of the bill was a lady called Dorothy Squires, very popular singer of the day. Uh, and so the theatre was full, so they had to stand at the back. And apparently, um, we were the closing act on the bill. And the usherette said to my father, watch this act. It's something we've never seen before. Usually when the last act comes on, the audience start to leave the theater in order not to miss the last bus. For this act, not one soul moves. Just watch. She said, it's unbelievable. And that's what happened. When we were on, nobody moved. And what would you, what advice would you give to uh, young people who, as this is not my sector or area at all, but what advice would you give to young people about pursuing, if they have a passion for the arts or, or passion otherwise, what advice would you give? Don't take no for an answer. Keep trying until somebody says, yes, I like it. Well, brilliant. I think on uh, that note, um, thank you, Arthur. Um, it's been a privilege to speak with you today and a joy to hear more about how you pursued your, your amazing career. For listeners to this podcast, thank you for listening and I hope you enjoyed it. Please do follow our Trials Includes content by following the hashtag Trials Includes on Twitter, LinkedIn or Instagram or by subscribing to our podcasts on Apple and Spotify. Thank you very much and goodbye. You have been listening to a podcast brought to you by Trowers Includes, international law firm Trowers and Hamlin's diversity and inclusion program. Find us at trowers.com forward slash Trowers Includes and join in the conversation on Twitter at Trowers hashtag Trowers Includes or find us on LinkedIn and Instagram.